Welcome to another episode of Tambra Talks Circular. I'm your host, Mitu Moran. Deposit return systems, or DRS, have been making headlines in recent years as a powerful tool to combat plastic pollution and promote recycling. While we've talked about DRS on several episodes of Tamra Talk Circular, today we're going to be looking at the implementation, challenges, and successes of DRS programs specifically in the United States, and even more specifically in Connecticut. The U.S. consumes 230 billion beverage containers a year. Just to give you an idea of what that means, if those bottles were laid end-to-end, they would wrap around the planet over 1,200 times. And while the U.S. has a mature waste management system, it is still considered a major plastic waste generator and a contributor of plastic waste to the coastal environment. That's due to the sheer volume of plastic consumption. Even if a small percentage of this leaks into the environment, it could still make a significant impact. Why are we focusing on Connecticut? With a population of 3.6 million, it's not necessarily on the global radar. But recent legislation pushed it towards the forefront of the fight to combat plastic waste. To help us navigate this complex landscape, I'm joined by Mike Noel, Director of Public Affairs at Tamra. Mike works with stakeholders across North America on recycling and reuse public policy, and he helps bring Tamra's global experience to the table when policymakers are designing new systems for deposit return or extended producer responsibility, also known as EPR. In fact, he was an advisor on Connecticut's recent upgrade. Prior to joining Tamra, Mike advised companies like Google, Target, and the North Face on their circular economy and climate strategies. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, me too. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start, Mike, with what a deposit system is. Could you give us an overview? Yeah, of course. So a deposit return system, it's a way to incentivize the collection of beverage cans and bottles so they are recycled or reused instead of wasted or littered. So uh, when a consumer goes to buy a beverage, a small refundable deposit is placed on top of the sales price. And when they return it, they're refunded the deposit in full. Uh, Think of it like buying a drink and borrowing the packaging. Since it's providing a financial incentive for the public to recycle, these systems have been shown to double or even quadruple recycling rates here in the U.S. Wow, that's, that's quite an increase. So it seems like it works. But why Connecticut? We know that plastic waste is challenging nationwide. Why is Connecticut a first mover on this? Well, I guess just to to give the landscape for folks, in the U.S., 10 states have DRS. Uh, But for the most part, the systems are antiquated. Many of the systems were passed in the 1970s or 80s. um, But it's not like the stakeholders have not tried to modernize the systems and help them evolve over over the years. It's that key factors like the value of the deposit uh, require a law change in order to update. uh, And that's a key indicator of the success and the the return rates of a program. Um, So for decades, there's been general gridlock on improving or expanding the programs. And the beverage industry, you know, would rather have less regulatory costs than more. 
So when proposals come up to update or expand these laws, they do tend to get uh, bogged down. That's until 2021. Uh, 2021 was when lawmakers in Connecticut, uh, where I'm based, addressed the common stakeholder challenges head on, and they passed legislation modernizing the deposit system here. So what has changed in 2021? There's a couple of reasons uh, while we're seeing change in, here in Connecticut. You know, there's 50 states. This is one that moved first uh, recently. The first is simple. Uh, it was costing cities and towns too much to dispose and recycle waste. Connecticut does not have an EPR for packaging program, meaning taxpayers or residents personally pay for trash and recycling services. And the cost of both was going up substantially in Connecticut. Um, the state burns a lot of its waste, uh, and one of the five waste incinerators was closed recently, uh, and that caused more waste to be trucked out of state at a higher cost and higher greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. At the same time, National Sword from um, China severely disrupted the recycling end markets in many states. So many towns here who used to make a decent income off of recycling from the commodity value they were now paying upwards of half a million dollars annually because they still had their fixed costs with little markets to uh, pay uh, and sell payroll. Mike, for our listeners, just a brief um, a brief recap. National Sword, the Chinese National Sword. Can you just give us a brief re- recap on what that is, and, and that'll help us better understand why this has been so disruptive? Yeah, it's it's kind of a suite of packages. Um, from a pack of a package of legislation from China, which basically set quality standards for, uh, as my understanding is, the um, quality of plastic that government and the country imports. Um, so previously, many uh, destinations around the world, including many U.S. states, would essentially sell their mixed plastic, in particular, to China. Um, my understanding is that um, the government was, in China was uh, concerned over the their perception in the world as a as a garbage dump um, for many of this contaminated mixed plastic, and so they set a very high quality standard for the plastic that they do accept. And in many cases, that was impossible for a lot of the collection and sorting systems in the U.S. Uh, to reach that quality standard. As a result, uh, towns were were left with you know, the contaminated plastic that comes from their curbside systems and they didn't have a buyer for that material. So suddenly they were, you know, paying to collect and sort this material and, uh, but yet no uh, income on the other end. You know, those, those markets have shifted a little bit, but it's still costing towns more, much more than it used to in the past. Okay. So it's national sword and it's higher costs, right? On the U.S. side, yes. On the U.S. side, right. So what else has changed? Sure. So the um, the curbside glass recycling system in Connecticut is not great. Um, we're not in Europe, so we don't have the little igloo drop-off systems for beverage containers. Um, mm. it's, uh, glass is typically handled through the curbside recycling system, but um, about 40% of the glass that makes it actually into the curbside recycling bin throughout the Northeast of the U.S., Connecticut included, about 40% of that goes to landfill for disposal or for alternative daily cover, which is, you know, covering uh, landfills in glass. Um, And this is, um, you know, this understandably upset those who want their glass bottles and in glass containers to be recycled. So that was a sticking point. 
there's an environmental justice concern. Like I said, most trash uh, in the state is is burned through incinerators, and the state's waste incinerators disproportionately affect low-income communities uh, who remain concerned about the human health risks of these facilities. So there was an interest in diverting as much waste as possible so we don't have to uh, build or, or, or um, we even invest in these types of facilities more. Um, and finally, there's, there was a broad interest and in, I would say, you know, uh, atmosphere coursing through the conversation about a general unease about plastic waste and what do we do about plastic waste. Connecticut's a coastal state um, and we like our beaches. Um, so I think it, it did irk a number of the lawmakers that um, they, the, they viewed um, Connecticut as contributing to the coastal plastic waste problem. Well, that, that suddenly all sounds very valid, um, and they needed to find a solution. So they looked to deposit return systems as a solution. Yeah, I mean, uh, Connecticut, we, we did have an existing uh, deposit system here. It's not a, it's not a brand new system. Um, Connecticut used to be a leader in litter prevention and recycling. It was one of the first to adopt DRS back in the 80s. Uh, and it worked for a while. As of um, 2002, 88% of beverage containers were redeemed and recycled. That's, you know, 90% is considered world-class. So it's pretty high, yeah. Right. It's pretty, pretty solid. But over time, as the value of, you know, the five-cent deposit declined, we did see the redemption rate dip um, at the same time. So uh, down to all the way down to 46%. So 88% down to 46%. And that's actually the, for those keeping track, that's the second lowest of all deposit systems in existence in the world. So the state did recognize they had a, you know, they had a tool here, the current infrastructure already built to address the waste issue. They knew the public responded, but it really wasn't being utilized. It hadn't been uh, updated. And the environmental community had been, you know, regularly calling for for modernizing the DRS for years in the state. But I think that the real trigger, what put it over the top, was municipalities came on board uh, as the waste capacity crunch and recycling markets really disrupted the situation for them. So it became not just an environmental initiative, but an economic concern as well. So, so what's actually happened now? So. Um, the, the legislation was updated in 2021, uh, and I, I would say the guiding theory on it is that there was an understanding the Connecticut deposit system, it had good bones. It just needed to update some of the fund, fundamentals to be brought up today's uh, monetary value. Um, so first, policymakers were, were primarily focused with the performance of the system. So they updated the deposit value uh, to make it more meaningful for, for the public. So 10 cents now instead of five. So they doubled it, basically. Doubled it, exactly. Yeah. Um, they made uh, beverages that became popular after the initial law passed eligible for a deposit refund. So think juice, sports drinks, things hard seltzer. Soda, beer, and water were already included in the system. So it was just kind of expanding to the additional range of, of beverages. Okay. Also making it less confusing. Right. Right. For the public. And um, third, they made redemption easily accessible. Um, and they did this in four ways. This is definitely a learning for other states, I would say. They, uh, they raised the amount that retailers and redemption centers, re redemption centers, by the way, that um, some folks call them depots here in the U.S., uh, a standalone. Okay. 
location to take back cans and bottles is referred to as a redemption center. And they raise the amount that retailers and redemption centers receive for taking in each can or bottle. It's known as a handling fee. And they wanted to make sure all the chain beverage retailers were accepting cans and bottles. So they required chain stores uh, that were 7,000 square feet and larger that had 10 or more locations in the state. So definitely a chain, in other words, uh, required these stores um, to install reverse vending machines. And this was kind of a signal to the public, hey, this store actually takes back my can of bottles because they may not know that um, yeah. the store actually takes it back unless they have machines. Third, uh, they established a $5 million grant fund for redemption centers in areas that did not have a redemption center. Uh, and this was just designed to kind of sweeten the deal for a redemption center entrepreneur who's thinking about opening up a location. Um, so it was the state investing in more redemption centers. And they also, uh, by raising the deposit value, that also incentivizes more retailers to participate and more redemption centers to open because the higher the deposit, that's more containers that the public is motivated to return. And for each container they um, take back, uh, the retailer in the redemption center gets, gets more revenue through the handling fee. Um, so it, they kind of took a really aggressive approach in making sure the public had easy access to redeem. Uh, and then I would say an, another major uh, factor in, in um, or, or sorry, another thing that changed with the law was helping the beverage industry to cover its regulatory costs. They did this by, uh, the state did this by sharing up to 95% of the unredeemed deposits if the beverage industry helped to reach recycling targets in legislation. So previously the state was taking 100% of the unredeemed deposits. Now it flipped almost entirely the other way as a way to help the industry, you know, kind of thank the industry and acknowledge the industry is helping to fund the deposit system. Okay, so, so Mike, you've been talking about all this in the past tense. When when did all of this take place and has there been any impact yet? Well, so we're, we're in the middle of modernization right now. Uh, the legislation passed oh. in June of 2021, uh, and it's designed to be implemented in three phases. The first is to expand redemption access, to, to raise the handling fee and the, the um, $5 million grant program I mentioned. Second, they expanded deposits to more beverage types. That happened just this past January. And then third is raising the incentive for the public to participate, right? the, the deposit value. Uh, and raising the deposit value is yet to come. That's coming in uh, this coming January, 2024. But okay. um, I'm happy to share that the first two phases are complete and uh, there's, there's some successes to share so far. Notably, the number of active return locations has essentially doubled in the state. It went from 359 to 709. And that's just- So that's already, sorry, that's already in place. That's in place. That's a tangible change okay. that's happened so far. Um, that's just active return locations, by the way. There's probably thousands of re retailers that are obligated to take back in the state, but these are, these are the locations that regularly receive um, cans and bottles from the public. 
Also, there has been 11 new redemption centers. It's a relatively small state, so 11 is, is significant over the course of two years. And we do expect more redemption centers to open up as the, the deposit value doubles. Retailers are, are, get, are gaining more money from the system. Uh, they, uh, retailers gained about $11 million in additional handling fee revenue in 2022. So they're, they're being compensated for the additional volume they're taking on uh, in acknowledgement of the service they provide for the public. Uh, and then most importantly, you know, 20, we're, we're, more containers are being collected and recycled. 25 million more containers were redeemed and recycled in the first six months of 2023 compared to uh, the same period in, in 2022. Um, much of that is due to expanding deposits to new new items like juice and sports drinks. And we're not even through the phases yet. So we still have the doubling of the deposit value coming in right. January. So this, this is all very, very positive. Very positive and very new. Uh, you know, it'll be... Okay. It'll go up in January, and then, you know, from the experience we viewed in uh, saw in Oregon when they raised their deposit, it generally takes about about three years for the the redemption rate to steadily pick up before it plateaus. So I think we've uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next three years. Okay, so at the beginning, Mike, at the beginning of this episode, we talked about um, how this kind of policy idea has been around for a while, but the challenges tend to prevent it from passing for one reason or the other. How did Connecticut break through these challenges? Good question. I, I would say lawmakers took a smart approach to stakeholder relations. Um, rather than you know getting bogged down in the different concerns and, and walking away, they took the time to better understand how the deposit system works, who the key stakeholders were, and they took reasonable steps to accommodate each of their needs. I, you know, at the end of the day, I think every uh, general group gave up something, but in, uh, but the the program was still modernized. So for the environmental community, it was it was important for them to raise the deposit value and make more beverages eligible for a refund. Um, that was, you know, it's designed to increase recycling rates. So they were um, that was critical for, from their standpoint. For municipalities, both the municipal associations in the state testified in support of the legislation, uh, in large part due to those high recycling and waste costs borne by taxpayers. And the the legislation diverts many containers to the deposit refund program, uh, which is paid for by the beverage industry. So that was a, a key ask of theirs. Uh, I'll add that you know, the legislation did leave out wine and liquor. Um, which the cities and towns were, were not happy about um, because they're, that, is, that type of beverage is typically in glass and glass is heavier and that means more um, cost for the municipalities who pay for recycling and waste by the ton. Um, so okay. keeping out wine and liquor was a compromise, um, but uh, it was, uh, like I said, everybody gave up something. The impact on consumers and the general public was definitely considered. The, the committee took really great lengths and great pains to make sure uh, getting one's de deposit money back would be as easy as buying a beverage in the first place. Uh, and they did that through the four measures I talked about earlier. Um, that, was a, that was a key um, factor. And that's as it should be, right? If we want people bringing things back, we'd need to make it as easy as possible. Absolutely. For retailers, retailers are always important in um, in the deposit system conversation. In this case, retailers sought better compensation for the redemption services uh, and to spread out the redemption volume throughout the state. 
So the raise in the handling fee assisted them to, to better invest in their bottle room experiences, to make it a better experience for their consumers. Um, and uh, it spurred, that same handling fee increase has spurred the creation of those 11 new redemption centers mm-hmm. we're interested in. Redemption centers are, are kind of viewed as a great place to divert high volume redeemers, the person showing up with a, you know, a pickup truck full of a bunch of bags where it's really not, that's really not the place for uh to be redeeming at retail. So redemption centers Mm. are important for those um, forms of redeemers. Uh, The $5 million grant program uh, certainly made it easier to open a new redemption center. So that was an ask of the uh, retailers as well. And on the more like practical level, um, retailers sought proper size limits for the containers that would be eligible for a deposit refund. From a retailer's perspective, they want as many deposit containers to go through reverse vending machines as possible because it automates the take back of containers um, and repayment to the consumer. So they don't need to designate uh, their whole customer service team to, you know, collecting, counting and sorting containers. Um, So setting proper size limits for what can actually fit within an RVM uh, was was important for, for retailers and that the law did acknowledge that. What else? So uh, the the be- grocery industry also wanted to ensure the other retailers in the state that sold beverages were taking back their fair share of containers. So um, the, requir- the requirement to install reverse vending mach- machine technology uh, expanded the active redemption beyond the traditional grocers. Some urban areas might not have a supermarket, but they do have many chain pharmacies and dollar stores. And uh, these days, these those types of uh, retailers do sell a lot of beverages. So the requirement to offer uh, reverse vending technology now tapped in, so to speak, those dollar stores and chain pharmacies. And that really helped to increase the number of return locations to the public. Other stakeholders that were important to the conversation uh, were the beverage industry, of course. Um, they were being asked to pay a substantial increase in handling fees to retailers and redemption centers. So lawmakers sought to balance the overall cost of the system. And in return, like I said, they, they helped to gradually give back uh, 90, up to 95% of the unredeemed deposits, tens of millions of dollars each year. Notably, the 2020-21 legislation also met one of the requests of the soft drink and bottled water industry, which was to allow the... Um, state's uh, environmental agency to authorize a stewardship organization made up of a range of beverage distributors to manage the refund program uh, as long as minimal criteria was met. That's in the legislation, but in practice, ultimately the beverage industry as a whole didn't agree on this approach. So at this point, no stewardship organization has been formed. Uh, and last but not least, I'll mention the private waste and recycling industry was definitely watching and, and engaged in the, the political debate. It eventually passed uh, despite concerns from the private hauler and MRF recycling industry. More material diverted from disposal and from uh, you know a private material recycling facility results in less commodity revenue for this this industry due okay. to less tipping fees and, and material revenue on the sale of recyclables. So that, that is a key concern um, that they raised. Um, and, uh, you know, one of their concerns is their fixed costs might stay the same if this material shifts from, you know, say the curbside system to the deposit system, but their commodity revenue or material revenue decreases. Um, so 
in the end, the Connecticut law passed without compensation uh, for this anticipated loss to private haulers, waste management entities, and, and the MRF operators. But you know, for, for those listening, because we're talking about different different deposit models here, um, I'll add that there are examples where a deposit refund system compensates curbside recycling operators in some way. Uh, Quebec's deposit modernization comes to mind. Um, where it requires the producer responsibility organization or PRO that manages the refund program to negotiate compensation with the curbside recycling operators in, in that profit. So there's, there's ways to um, help out that industry and acknowledge their material revenue loss. Um, but in this case in Connecticut, um, they move forward um, uh, without that aspect. So this example really in Connecticut is, is a good example of bringing everyone to the table, looking at their concerns, um, talking to one another, and trying to find the best possible solution, uh, except the, the last point that you mentioned, compensating for maybe a loss of revenues in, in that sense. But there are models that do, do, do that, as you've mentioned, in Quebec and Canada. So it is possible. You just need to get everyone to the table or not you necessarily, but everyone needs to get to the table to find a solution that really will provide um, excellent results. That's that's what we're all looking for, I think. Yep, a lot, of, a lot of listening and working through the challenges and checking back in with folks. So Mike, looking ahead, what does the future hold for DRS in the US? Oh, I wish I had a crystal ball, me too. Um, I, I wish I had one too, Mike, not just for this. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, look, more changes ahead for sure. Uh, the U.S. has experienced a wave of reform right now with regards to packaging and, and plastic waste. Um, there's talk of a federal deposit law. There was a hearing recently in the Senate, um, and several states will file legislation to create new deposit programs and new EPR for packaging programs in the coming year. Um, you know, something that's energizing the debate and kind of overarching all this is the UN Plastics Treaty. Uh, and I'm personally just noting a lot of a lot of renewed interest in, in reuse and refill and how those uh, types of systems can, can factor into the future. Um, so, you know, more is going to happen. Let's say that um, in terms of what actually passes in terms of public policy, I think it's what you just said. The key is going to be finding a balance that works for for consumers for the for the industry and and for the environment um and at least for me i can say there's going to be lots of coffee needed to get through this <laughs> whatever it takes mike whatever it takes yeah. thanks for coming back on the program and updating us on what's going on in terms of drs in the united states i hope to hear more about additional progressive steps taken in the future and we look forward to having you back on the program. Thanks, me too. And all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Tomer Talk Circular. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Together, we really can create a more sustainable and circular future.